0: Okay, Matthew chapter 5, and we'll read verses 1 through 12. We began uh, the Sermon on the Mount last week, and we're in these uh, Beatitudes, uh, and so we'll continue our study of that this week. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, there the Word of Christ says this, Seeing the crowds, he went up on to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you so here we're in this passage where Jesus is giving uh his most lengthy uh recorded teaching uh in the New Testament is here on the Sermon on the Mount where he addresses many and various uh topics and here to begin this sermon he's describing the life of blessedness, right? This is the blessed life, uh, the life that we should desire, the life that we want to attain to. This is the life uh, that is associated with those who do the will of God. And here, the striking thing about the Beatitudes is it seems as if these things are contrary to a blessed state, yet in the kingdom of God, those things that are contrary to a blessed state in this present world actually produced and bring about the blessed state in the kingdom of God, right? We don't typically think that poor people are blessed, yet here he pronounces a blessing upon those who are poor in spirit. We don't typically think that those who mourn are a blessed blessed people, and yet here it is those who mourn over their sin who are going to be comforted by God, and they will be comforted by Christ. Typically in this world, it is not the meek who attain high levels of Power and authority in world governments, in companies, right, in society. It's rather those who are very proud, who are very arrogant, who are assertive, who seek to promote themselves uh, and have their own way, that they are the ones who rise to the top and who rule and dominate this world. And yet here, the blessing is not for the proud and arrogant, but rather for those who are meek, who are mild and lowly and humble, that they are the ones who are going to inherit the earth, right? It will belong To them, So these things, which commonly in this present world are detestable to the wicked, detestable to people, they're not virtues or attributes that many people seek or want, yet in the kingdom of Christ, these are the things that we should desire. And we have to remember that everything in this world is turned upside down, right? The world in which we live is not right side up, but rather it is upside down darkness is light, light is darkness, right? Bitter is sweet, sweet is bitter. Good is evil, evil is good. This is how this present world operates. Those things which should be exalted among men are deplorable to them, and those things which should be detestable to men are what they exalt. But in the sight of God, those things that are exalted among men are detestable in his sight, and those things that are deplorable to men are actually exalted and beautiful in the The sight of Christ when it comes to these spiritual virtues, these spiritual attributes. And so, this is what we should desire and this is what we should seek seek those things that are above, seek those things that are pleasing to God, and pursue blessing, right? Not in the avenues that this world promotes, but rather to pursue blessing the way that God calls us to, right? This is what God says. And if He says it is blessed, to be poor in spirit, that it is blessed to mourn, that it is blessed to be meek, then we need to believe those things, and then we need to cultivate those virtues within our own life, right? And these are describing those things that must be true of believers, right, of Christians, and will only be true of believers. And these are things that must be true of us at our conversion, right? There's no one who will ever be converted who is not poor in spirit. No one can be converted without mourning, Over their sin. No one can be converted without being meek, right? These things must be true of us. And then as we go on, all of these things are describing what is true of believers, right? Of true Christians, truly children of God, but they are true of us at our conversion. And yet they are also to be true of us throughout our life because we constantly need to be poor in spirit. We need to mourn over our sin. We need to be meek in all of our life. And we need to grow in meekness. And then as we go on, we need to pursue righteousness, right? We need to be uh, merciful and pure in heart. We need to be peacemakers. We need to not reject persecution and suffering because these are necessary for us in this present life. So that's what we're dealing with. And last time we did the first three of these, Uh, we finished at verse five. So we'll pick up tonight in verse six which is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Here he speaks of a blessing for those who are hungering and thirsty, right? And again, typically speaking, we would not think those who are hungry, that they are blessed or those who are thirsty, that these are typically signs of affliction and being in a state of suffering. And certainly that is true in terms of our physical life. But in terms of spiritual life, Hunger is a good thing, right? Thirst is a good thing. These are good qualities for a person to have because when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, then what will God do for us? He's going to satisfy us. He's going to fill us. He's going to give us the very thing that we seek and the very thing that we desire. And so this is what we are called to do to have a desire, right? An insatiable desire, right? Because a man who is hungry, right, who has true hunger, Unlike what many of us ever experience in our lives, because we eat whenever, whenever we start feeling the first signs of hunger, we're able to satisfy that craving. But a person who has gone days without eating, right, that type of a person who is starving, who is hungry in that way, right, he desires and he will seek out food and he will do things that even uh, a person in a civilized state would not do. He would eat things that we would never eat. He might eat out of the trash can, right? He might eat something killed on the side of the road, right? If he's truly a hungry person or someone who is deprived of water, someone who is so thirsty, right, that he has to satisfy and quench his thirst. He might drink out of a pond or a stream or something that's dirty because he has to have this in order to satisfy his thirst. Well, in terms of righteousness, in terms of our spiritual state, we are not those who are like a person who is well fed, who is fat and plump, and who's gone two or three hours without a meal. And that's the type of hunger we have in terms of spiritual things. This hunger is a complete lack of any righteousness, right? That's what we have to understand about ourselves, that we have no righteousness of our own. As it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, 9, 10, and 11, that there is none who is righteous, no, not one, that we have no righteousness of our own. So in that state, in our spiritual state, we are completely deprived and bereft of any good at all in terms of righteousness, in terms of thirst, right? We are parched, we are dry, we have nothing to drink, and we have no way to satisfy our hunger or to satisfy our thirst through our own efforts. But there is one who can satisfy us, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That his righteousness is the only righteousness that can satisfy God and meet up to God's standard, but also it is satisfying to those who seek it, right? To those who see their need for Christ, who are hungering and thirsting for true righteousness. Well, when they go to Christ for his righteousness, what will he give to them? He's going to give it to them. There's not one sinner. Who has ever come to Christ humbly, right? As a repentant sinner, begging for the mercy of Christ, begging for the righteousness of Christ, that Christ has ever turned away. Every beggar that comes to him genuinely, sincerely, seeking his righteousness, he always gives to them his righteousness. And they go away satisfied, they go away filled, they go away having the very righteousness of Christ. So this is what he's talking about here. When we hunger and thirst for true righteousness, we'll see that we have it not in ourselves and we will go to God and then God will give to us the very righteousness of Christ. And then when that righteousness is imputed to us, then what does it do to us? It causes us to walk in newness of life. Then we're going to want to pursue a godly life and a righteous life and will increase in our practical righteousness throughout our life as well. And this is what we must seek for God. This is our greatest need. Our greatest need is righteousness. We need the righteousness of Christ. This is all men's greatest need. This is what the gospel teaches us. We remember from Romans chapter one, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God, right? The righteousness of God, the righteousness of God has been manifested to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the, the righteousness that we need, the very righteousness of Christ. And Romans was teaching us how it is that we who have no righteousness could obtain the very righteousness of God, not through works, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. Psalm chapter 42 Psalm 42, verse one, this desire for righteousness must be true of us. And it has been true of all of the righteous from the very beginning of time, right? From from Adam to the end of the world, this must be true of all the righteous, that they hunger and thirst for righteousness. Psalm 42, verse one, as a deer pants for flowing streams, So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise and multitude keeping festival. So there, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, right? This is what we should desire and seek, and why does he thirst for God? Because God is the source, the fount of all righteousness. He is that source that we go to and where we are filled. Okay, also Isaiah 55 Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. Isaiah 55, 1 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. So there the prophet is calling the people to come to the waters, right? Those who are thirsty, come to the water, come and buy and buy without money, right? Meaning it's free. You come and it is freely given to you by God. But who are the only ones who will come? Those who are thirsty, Those who are hungry, those who see their need, they are the ones who will come and who will buy from Christ true righteousness without money and without price, meaning that Christ will give it to them freely. John chapter 7, John chapter 7 and verse 37. John seven thirty seven says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So here, at the feast, Jesus calls the people, just as the prophet Isaiah did, to come to him, to believe in him. And if they're thirsty, to come and drink of Christ, to drink of him by faith. And then out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is what God will give to this person who comes and drinks of Christ, receiving his righteousness. Then also Matthew chapter six, Matthew chapter six, Verse thirty-three. Here, in reference to this present world, right? This is a common problem uh, in life. Is people are fixated in on this present world. Most people are uh, much more concerned about what they're going to eat for their next meal than they are with true righteousness. Right? This is what's on their mind all the time. Many, many people. Food, right? Their belly. Their God is their belly. That's all they think about. What am I going to eat for breakfast? And then as soon as breakfast is over, what am I going to have for lunch? And then as soon as lunch is over, what am I going to have for my afternoon snack? And then as soon as that is over, what will I have for dinner? And then as soon as that is over, what will I eat before I go to bed? Right? They're always thinking about food and what they're going to have their next meal. But they're not thinking about the righteousness of God. They're not thinking about pursuing those spiritual things, but this is what needs to be at the forefront of our mind. Pursuing the righteousness of Christ, pursuing a righteous life, and not that it's the physical is unimportant or that the physical is not necessary. Of course, we need our daily bread. Of course, we need to eat and do whatever is necessary to provide food for our body and food for our families, but what's more important is the righteousness of Christ. That's what should be on our mind and what we should be pursuing as our primary focus in life, not the physical things in this world. Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Right, All these things being the physical necessities of life. God will provide everything that you need according to his will and what you should chiefly concern yourself with is the kingdom of god and his righteousness living a godly and righteous life and then god will provide and he will meet all of your needs so hungering and thirsting for righteousness and both of these are found in christ and this is why in the lord's supper we eat the body of christ and we drink the blood of christ He is the one who is the food that we eat that nourishes our soul. And he is the water or the wine that we drink, the blood that we drink that nourishes our soul. So we eat of Christ, we drink of Christ and all of this we do by faith. By faith in him, we partake of Christ and then his righteousness becomes within us and it becomes a source of living water within us that satisfies us uh, and gives to us all that we need for life, and for godliness. Everything we need for eternal life to obtain eternal life with God is found in the person, in the work of Jesus Christ, namely in his righteousness. Okay? All right. Number, uh, verse seven. Next. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Right? Blessed are the merciful, meaning those people who have this virtue of being merciful, being compassionate, Right toward other people, that this is the way we are supposed to be in the Christian life. We're not to be bitter, we're not to be harsh, we're not to hold grudges, we're not to be unforgiving. Right? Because when we have received the mercy of God in our own life, then what kind of people will that make us? It'll make us a merciful people. When God shows love to us and we receive that love, then it makes us love God. And it makes us love our neighbor as ourselves, right? These two things are produced in us when we receive the righteousness of Christ. And so as God has been merciful to us, so we ought to be merciful to others. And here he's describing a merciful person, one who shows mercy to others as someone who is blessed because when we are merciful, it is evidence that we are truly children of God that we are like our Father who is in heaven because God is merciful to us and it shows that we have a true right understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Because in the gospel, God is very merciful to us and how can we receive that mercy from God and then not turn around and be merciful to others, right? The only way a person can think like that if is if they believe that their sins against God are less offensive than others sins against them right that my affront to God is less of a big deal right than when someone affronts me or when someone sins against me So God is obligated to forgive me because my sins are very little but when someone sins against me I'm never going to forgive them because they've done this great thing against me. So only a person who has a corrupted warped mind who is so inflated, with his own self-worth, his own arrogance and pride, would think that God owes him mercy, but then he doesn't owe it to someone else. So, a Christian who is unwilling to forgive is an oxymoron, right? They do not right. exist, right? They, it is impossible for someone to be an unmerciful Christian, an unmerciful Christian. Now, with this, we have to understand mercy correctly, right? Mercy must be understood in its proper way, And God gives mercy to us, not unconditionally, but on the condition of repentance, right? When a man repents, then God is merciful to them. Now, he is merciful in a general sense to all mankind in that he gives to all mankind life, breath, and all things. He causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the wicked. The sun shines on the righteous and the wicked. So God is good to all men in that sense, and we ought to be good to all men in that sense as well. So if we see someone with a legitimate need, right, a desperate need in a situation, then we ought to help them whether they're a Christian or not, right? Whether they're a brother or not. If we see even our enemy and we see him stranded on the side of the road, uh, we should stop and assist him and we should stop and help him and preach the gospel to him, right? So we ought to be merciful in that way. But then also, we should be merciful in that we should forgive one another when we sin against each other. That This is going to happen in the body of Christ. We are going to sin against one another. It's going to happen in the home, between the husband and the wife, between the father and the children, between the mother and the children. Uh, this is going to be the case. And it's going to happen in the church as well. Well, if someone in the home or in the church sins against me and comes to me and asks for forgiveness and repents of their sin, then what should I do? I should forgive them. I should be merciful to them because God has been merciful to me and I shouldn't hold a grudge against them or say, I'm never going to forgive you because you committed this great offense against me. Even if it is a severe and a heinous offense, we should forgive them and not hold a grudge against them but receive them back into our fellowship. So this mercy isn't without condition, but it is based on the way that God gives mercy. Luke chapter 17, Luke chapter 17, just to confirm this, Luke chapter 17, verse one, says he said to his disciples, now I say this because many people say, we should just forgive unconditionally, okay? Forgive unconditionally, uh, and uh, regardless of whether or not the person is repentant, regardless of if they ever uh, say, ask for forgiveness, that we should just forgive them and act like nothing ever happened, okay? Luke chapter 17, verse one, he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So there, if he sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he repents. If he doesn't repent, then you can't forgive him because he's not repented. Just as God doesn't forgive us of our sins if we don't repent. So if he repents, then we should forgive him. And then how many times should we forgive him? Well, seven times in a day. If he sins against you seven times. And again, he's saying this uh, as an exaggeration, right? To show, to make a point. Meaning as many times as someone sins against us and as many people that sin against us, if they truly repent, then we should forgive them. We should forgive. Now we might say, well, how do we know if they truly repented? Well, all we can do is go by what we see. We can't see their heart and it could be that they're lying, that they're deceiving us. But if they make amends and if they do those things outwardly that they need to do, then we should forgive them, right? So for example, if someone steals from me and he comes and asks for forgiveness, but he doesn't restore what he stole from me, then I know he's not really repentant, right? Because he didn't make amends for what he did. But if he stole from me and he restores it and he says, I'm sorry, then I should forgive him. Whether or not he truly means it or not, because I can't see his heart, all I can see is his actions and his actions are conducive toward true repentance. Therefore, I should forgive him. This is what we are called to do in this way. Okay, okay. Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18, and verse 21, Matthew eighteen twenty-one says that Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servant saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Right, and it gets the point across in a <coughs> emotive way. Right, Who can't read this and see how incredulous you should be against this unforgiving servant? How could someone receive such mercy and then turn around and be so harsh toward another person? And yet this is what this man did. He owed an insurmountable debt to this master that he could never pay in 10,000 lifetimes. And yet his master forgave him of this insurmountable debt, then his fellow servant owed him a debt that wasn't nearly as great as what he owed his master, and yet he would not have any pity or mercy on him, having just received this from his master, right? So no one would read this and go, well, the master went overboard. He shouldn't have done that to him. No, everyone would say, yes, throw him in jail, beat him, beat him in jail, kill this man. How could he be like this? Well, then Jesus says, this is what's going to happen to every one of you. If you don't forgive your brother from your heart, if your brother sins against you and you deal with it and you don't forgive him, then this is what God will do to you. He's going to treat you this way because, and, and who could object to that? Who could say, that's not just, that's not fair, that's not right, right? There's no one reading this objectively who could say those things. So here, the point being, God has been merciful to us. He's forgiven us an insurmountable debt, right? We've sinned against God and every sin we commit against God is more flagrant than any sin any person could ever commit against us, right? The smallest sin we commit against God is more flagrant and grotesque than even if someone murdered us. This is how much of an offense sin is to God. And yet God forgives us not only of our small sins, but also of our very large sins, right? Of all of our sins. He forgives us of our sins of the past. He forgives us of our sins of the present. And he forgives us of all of those sins of the future as well. He's wiped all of them away. Now, again, is anyone ever going to sin against us that much typically in this life? It may be once or twice in this life that someone, Yeah, you know, if you're married, it's probably going to be more than that. But, uh, you know, typically in their church relationship, right, it may be a couple of times here or there that something like that happens. But not every day, not a hundred times every day, not all these past offenses, not all these future offenses. Yet God forgives us of all of this. So we should also be very forgiving and very merciful with one another. Okay, Proverbs 19 Proverbs 19, verse 17. It says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. So whoever is generous, right? Then this is describing a merciful person, right? A generous person to the poor, right? They are lending to the Lord. It's as if they're letting God borrow money, and then what is God going to do with all his debts? Well, he's going to pay them. You can guarantee it. So you may not get it back from this poor person, but God sees it. God knows. Think of it like this. You're not giving it to the poor person. You're giving it to the Lord, and will the Lord pay you back? Well, he'll pay you back much more than what you've ever given. You've lended to the poor. He will repay for his deed. So, This is how we should be. We should be generous, kind, merciful, compassionate toward one another. Now, again, when he says poor here, he doesn't mean lazy. He doesn't mean bums. He doesn't mean uh, drug addicts. He doesn't mean drunkards. He doesn't mean that, people who are unwilling to work. He can't mean that, right? Because the apostle Paul tells us, if a man will not work, neither let him eat. So if a person is unwilling to work, then he shouldn't eat. So merciful doesn't mean gullible. It doesn't mean naive. It doesn't mean a uh, broken heart, uh, uh, bleeding heart liberal, right? Like what we have uh, in the government, right? Where they want to take our money and give it to other people who are not working, who are not doing those things, right? We shouldn't be doing that. We shouldn't be promoting that type of sin and that type of sloth and laziness within the society, nor should the government be seizing the money of hard-working citizens and giving it distributing it to people who are refusing to work however if there is someone who is legitimately poor then we should help them we should be generous to them especially if they're of the household of faith and then god will reward us according to what we have done so this is evidence of a merciful a merciful and a compassionate person luke chapter 6 Luke six, verse thirty-two. Luke six thirty-two. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. So here, this mercy extends not only to the believer, not only when someone sins against us and seeks forgiveness, we should forgive them and be merciful. But even here, amongst the evil and the ungrateful even amongst our enemies if they have some need a legitimate need then we should lend them our help this is as it taught in the old testament if you see the ox of your enemy right going astray what are you supposed to do you're supposed to take it back right if your enemy falls into a well you don't just leave him there because he's your enemy you go and you help him you assist him you get him out. If your enemy's house is burning down, you should go assist them and help them get out of the house. If they have a car wreck and you see them, you should stop and help them and provide whatever assistance you can do. This is as the parable of the Good Samaritan. He didn't know the man. He wasn't his enemy, but he also was a stranger. He didn't know who he was. It wasn't his child. It wasn't his father. It wasn't his wife or his mother that was there on the side of the road. It was some complete stranger. And yet the good Samaritan didn't leave the man there to die, but the man was in desperate need. It was an emergency. So he lended him his aid without expecting anything in return. And that's what he means here. This is the way that we ought to be. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't talk about sin. And even if we help our enemy, then we should preach the gospel to them, right? We should say to them those kinds of things. Okay, Second Samuel twenty two. Second Samuel twenty-two. Second Samuel, Samuel twenty-two twenty-six. Twenty-two twenty-six. With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You say they humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. So with the merciful, God is merciful. That's what he's saying here. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy, right? Not because when we're merciful, we earn God's mercy, but because God has already given us his mercy, it makes us merciful people. And it proves that we have received the mercy of God and we will continue to receive the mercy of God all the way up until we are brought into the life to come, into eternal life with God. Okay, then one last passage here, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And we'll pick up in verse 32. Here is an example of of being merciful. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession And an abiding one. So, there, the Christians in the church were suffering. They were themselves suffering and being exposed to reproach, but they were also being partners with those who were treated. They were having compassion on the Christians who were thrown into prison. And as a result of their having compassion on them, their property was being plundered. But that didn't keep them from continuing to show mercy and have compassion because they knew they had a abiding a better possession waiting for them in heaven right that's what he's teaching here blessed are the merciful for they're going to receive mercy they're going to get something better in heaven than what they lose in this present life okay back to matthew chapter 5 verse 8 verse 8 says blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see god Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Here, the blessing is on those who are pure in heart, right? Pure in heart, which we, again, know is not true of anyone naturally, is not true of us by our birth, by our natural state, in our natural state, right? In the sinful state, none of us are pure, but rather we are very impure, right? We are unholy, we are unrighteous. We have absolutely no purity at all. So how is it then that men whose hearts are cesspools, right? The heart of man is desperately sick, right? It is deceitful above all things. So the heart of man is as black as coal, right? It is completely corrupted with sin, with impurity, with unholiness. And yet here he pronounces, that there are those who are going to be pure in heart and that they are the ones who will see God. So how can someone who is impure, how can they become pure? And it takes a miracle of God, right? This is what uh, the prophets predicted and taught when they said that God would give to us a new heart. He would remove the heart of stone and he would replace it with a heart of flesh. God removes the unholy heart and replaces it with a pure heart. And this is the heart that we need in order to be saved. And it has to be done by the work of the Holy Spirit of God. But only the Spirit of Christ living within us, only He can change our heart. Only He can make our hearts pure. And this is what He does. And the blessing that we receive is that we will see God, which should be the, the greatest desire of every person, of every child of God. We should have no greater desire than to behold God, to see God, to be with God, right? To be in his presence, because that's where fullness of joy is found, right? Our full joy is found in being in the presence of the Lord. Isn't that why the apostle tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? And which one is better? To stay here in the body or to be in the presence of the Lord? He says he would rather depart and be in the presence of the Lord because that is better by far. Because this is the child of God's greatest delight is to be in the presence of God, right? Now, we do experience the presence of God now, but in this life, it is in a small measure, right? It's like Moses, whenever he saw the hind parts of God, he saw some of the glory of God but he could not see all the glory of God. But in the life to come, when we're given our new bodies, right when we're made into the image of Christ, then we will be able to behold God. We will see him as he is, and we will see the glory of God, right the presence of God. And then this will be the basis of our joy for all eternity, to be with the Lord and to enjoy his presence forever, which is why people who don't want anything to do with the things of God, right? Who don't read their Bibles, who don't offer prayers to God, who have no desire to gather with the saints of God, to hear the teaching of the word of God, right? There are many people who would find this to be extremely boring, right? It would be worse for them than going to the doctor, right? Going to the dentist would be to have to sit and listen to a one hour Bible study. Well, if they can't even endure those things in this life, this little bit of the glory of God that we see now, why would we ever think that those people will want to go to heaven one day where all we do is bask in and enjoy the glory of God, the presence of God? If they have no desire for it now, then they'll have no desire for it in the life to come, right? And the reason they don't desire it now is because their hearts aren't pure. They do not have a pure heart. Their heart has not been purified. Their desires are not right. They desire the things of this world. They have no problem watching a four hour football game. They have no problem watching TV shows, watching movies, right? Doing those things. They don't have a problem going out and looking at nature, but they do have a problem with reading the Bible. They do have a problem with enjoying the presence of the Lord. Now, they find God to be boring. Well, God finds them boring, and so do I. Okay, so blessed are the pure in heart. Verse 8, Psalm 24. Psalm 24. Psalm 24, verse three, says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who will stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in His holy place? Now, who can be with God? And it's only those with clean hands and pure hearts, clean on the inside and clean on the inside. On the outside, this is the way that we have to to be, and it goes from inside out. We have to be changed in the heart, and when the heart is changed, then the hands are changed, the feet are changed, the eyes are changed, the ears are changed. This is the way it works in terms of the Christian life. God changes us on the inside, and then as a result, we are changed on the outside. And these are the ones who can dwell with God. Clean hands and a pure heart. And that takes a work of the Lord. Second Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So here, he's describing the attributes, the characteristics of those who have a pure heart right? The pure heart is the source, the reason, the basis for what it is that the righteous man pursues, right? He flees from youthful passions, right? He flees from sin. This would be like Joseph in Genesis uh, 39. Whenever he was in Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife sought to entice him to commit immorality with her, what did he do? He fled. He fled youthful passions. He did not let Those passions that consume and control most youths that did not consume and control young Joseph. Though he was still a very young man, a teenager, yet he was able to overcome this sinful passion. Well, why? How is it that Joseph was able to overcome this sinful passion? Well, what kind of a heart did he have? He had a pure heart, a pure heart that was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had changed his heart. We know that being a natural man, being born from Adam, he was not born with a pure heart. He did not have that naturally from his birth, but he had the rebirth, the new birth, where the Holy Spirit gives the new heart. And when that new heart is purified, a pure heart, then the result is that we flee youthful passions, we reject sin, and instead we pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Those are the things that we should attain for and what we should seek in this present life. And then he says that those who do this will see God. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So there he calls us to strive for peace, and for holiness, and without holiness, no one will see the Lord, because only those who are pure in heart will see God, and those who have a pure heart, they will pursue holiness in this life, and then the reward that God will give to them is that they will see God, right? When we pursue holiness, we're pursuing the Lord, we're pursuing God, and God will give to us what it is that we pursue. We'll see God, who is himself completely holy and righteous we will see him first John chapter 3 first John chapter 3 first John 3 verse 1 it says see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are our salvation has begun, but it has not been completed. We have not reached and attained the final state of our salvation, which is our glorification. Right? We, so that's not appeared yet. We have not received our glorified bodies. We've not been conformed perfectly to the image of Christ yet. But when will this happen? When he appears. When Christ appears and we see him, we will be transformed like him. We will be like him because we will see him as he is. And this is the hope of the children of God, is that we will be made like Christ, right? In terms of his humanity, right? He is a perfect man and he will make us into perfect men as well. We will be without any sin and we will have eternal, immortal, spiritual, indestructible bodies that can never die just as Christ himself has an indestructible immortal body that can never die that is our hope and since we have that hope and the hope is to be pure as Christ is then what will we pursue in this life we're going to pursue purity right whoever has this hope is going to purify himself in this life by crucifying his sin right mortifying his sin because he wants to be like Christ that's the goal, is to be like Christ. We can attain to that perfectly in this life, but we should strive for it. That's what we should shoot for. That should be the goal of all Christians, is to be like Christ, because that's what we're going to be in the end. But until we get to that, we should strive for it, even though we cannot obtain it perfectly in this present life. Then also, Revelation 22 No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more and they will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So there in verse four, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. The righteous will see God, his face, and then God will write his name on their foreheads, meaning they're his possession. They belong to him. They are his treasured possession. This end, the eternal life that we will have with God in the new heavens and new earth. And then one last passage concerning this. 1 Corinthians 13 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8 it says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So there he's making a comparison between this present life and the life to come. In this present life, we are like children, right? We're like children. In the life to come, we will be like men, right? Children do childish things. They speak like children, they think like children, they reason like children. But then when that child becomes a man, he gives up those childish ways. Well, in this life, even believers, were like children because we see dimly as in a mirror. We see and we behold the glory of Christ, but we see him dimly as in a mirror, because we're beholding him by faith in his word. Not that there's deficiency in the word of God. The deficiency always lies in us, right? It's in our weak faith. It is in our lack of knowledge. It's because of our own flesh that we see dimly as in a mirror. But then in the life to come, we're going to see him face to face. Then we will know him fully. Now we know him in part. Then we will know him fully, even as we are fully known. So this will be when we see him face to face. Okay, back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. We'll do one more, and that will be verse 9. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. It says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So here the blessing is on those who are peacemakers peacemakers, which first must be understood between God and men. And how is it that we make peace between God and men? By preaching the gospel. When we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are teaching men who are sinners and who are at war with God, how they can have peace with God through the forgiveness of their sins, if they believe in Christ and turn away from their sins. So this is what we should do. We should be peacemakers in that we should teach men how to have peace with God, but also we should be peacemakers between our fellow men, right? We should teach men to be peaceful people. We should strive for peace. We should pursue peace with all men. This is what, this is the way that we want to live. We don't want to have conflict. We don't want to have controversy. Now, there are times when conflict and controversy are unavoidable, right? We don't want those things, but they're going to come upon us. But as, as much as it depends on us, we should live peaceably with all men because we are peaceful people. We're not troublemakers. We're not rabble-rousers. We shouldn't be doing that kind of stuff because God has been peaceful with us. He has given us his peace so that we're not raging around like maniacs anymore. And then we should be peaceful in this present world by teaching men how to have peace with God and by teaching others how to have peace with one another. And those who are peacemakers will be called sons of God, right? God is a God of peace. And those who make peace, who pursue peace, will be called sons of God. They prove that they themselves are legitimate children of God. Illegitimate children of God, they're troublemakers, Churches are filled with these kinds of people. There's all sorts of troublemakers in churches. They don't make peace, they cause trouble. So they're not sons of God. They're illegitimate sons of God, right? They're stillborn sons of God, but they're not living, true sons of God. But the evidence of a true child of God is that they seek to make peace between other people and between God. Okay, Malachi chapter four. Malachi. That's right. Oh yes, Malachi chapter four. You just thought we were there on Sundays. Stepping our toe, a little preview of what's to come. Malachi chapter four, verse five. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. The prophet Elijah, who was John the Baptist, Who came before Christ, he turned the hearts of fathers to children and children to fathers. Right? And when that happens, what does it produce in the home? A peaceful home, right? A stable, calm, peaceful home where father and children and mother are united together under the banner of Christ, under the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when the father's a believer and the mother's a believer and the child is a believer there's gonna be harmony, right? There's gonna be unity, there's gonna be peace. Now, this isn't always gonna be the case because there will also be uh, a sword, right? There will be a sword and Jesus says he did not come to bring peace in all circumstances, but that fathers and sons will also be against each other when the father is wicked and the son is righteous, right? When the mother's a believer and the child is an unbeliever or the husband is a believer and the wife is an unbeliever, then there's not going to be harmony, there's not going to be peace, but there's going to be strife and contention. Not because the believer is a troublemaker, he wants to get along, but because the unbeliever won't give them a moment's rest. Right? This is the way it always goes down. They accuse us of being troublemakers, but in reality, they are the ones who cause problems and they're the ones who always walk away from us. James chapter 3 James chapter 3 and verse, uh, we'll start reading in verse 13. James three thirteen. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. heavenly wisdom that comes from God and earthly wisdom that comes from man and demons, right? It's man and demons. Well, the earthly unspiritual demonic wisdom ends up bringing about jealousy and selfish ambition. It leads to disorder. It leads to chaos. It leads to every vile practice imaginable. But the wisdom that comes down from God, it doesn't lead to disorder, but rather it produces peace. Right, this is what it brings about. Peace is gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, sincere. Right? That's what we want. Isn't that what we want in our churches? Isn't that what we want in our homes? Is that type of atmosphere? Isn't that a good home to raise a child in? An atmosphere where there is purity, peace, gentleness, open to reason, mercy, good fruits, impartial, sincere. That's what we want and then a harvest of righteousness sown in peace by those who make peace. And then he pronounces that those who are peacemakers will be called sons of God. That's what we read earlier from 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, that we are children of God now, right? Even now, we are sons of God, and then our sonship will be manifested. It will be made known to the whole world, On the day of judgment, God will reveal who are His children, whenever He comes and separates the sheep from the goats. Then also Romans chapter eight verse fourteen, Romans eight fourteen, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the Spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the Spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So if we're led by the Spirit, we are sons of God. Right. And the Spirit is the Spirit of peace. The Spirit of peace. So that's way, the way we need to be.